I'll invite you to turn with me to uh, the book of Isaiah. Uh, uh, sorry, not Isaiah. Hosea. <laughs> Just been in Isaiah. And uh, you may be wondering where that is. So uh, you can either look up the index at the front, which is always useful. Or if you're flicking through and you find Ezekiel or, uh, or Jeremiah, then you go Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. So quite easy. Find Ezekiel and then go forward a couple of books. And uh, I know I've been trailing this for a few weeks now, but uh, we are actually starting Hosea this evening. Let's, uh, so we're going to read uh, the first chapter and the first verse of chapter 2, because I think it fits with chapter t- 1 rather than... It's one of these cases where the chapter breaks are not very helpful. Um, so, in my opinion. <laughs> but uh, I'm, not, I'm not the only one. Let's hear God's word. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, Take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu. For the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name, No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she weaned, weaned, when she weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, this is a a tricky passage and a tricky book, and we pray that this week and the weeks to come, you'd help us to really get a grip of the book and uh, help us to understand it and uh, get a sense of the big issues that are at stake for us as we read it, that we may respond rightly to your word 
and not make the mistakes of the Israelites. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 <clears throat> well, some of you may not have a clue who Hosea is. And I, I hope you've read it, but maybe you haven't. And uh, I never presume these things. But if you haven't read it, you should have. And, and you should go away from here and certainly start reading the book of Hosea over the next uh, uh, few days, weeks, and get familiar with it. But let me set the scene just a little bit. And uh, uh, just to think about the Old Testament generally, the, 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 the Jews split the Old Testament into three sections. Uh, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And the Jewish Bible is in a different order from our Bible. And uh, the law is, is the writings of Moses, the first five books. Um, the, the writings are uh, the various wisdom books and the Psalms and Pro, you know, Proverbs, Songs of Solomon, uh, and so on. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, they're all, they're all the writings and many more. And then the prophets are written by, well, you know, the prophets. Uh, and they've got their names attached to, uh, to those, those writings. And those are like the likes of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, and so on. And the prophets are usually divided into two groups in our thinking. One, uh, there, there are the major prophets, that's Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, uh, and Daniel's often included in that group of major prophets. Major because they're the bigger books, not because they're more important, but just because they're bigger. Um, and the, the rest are the minor prophets, uh, the 12 remaining books, um, which are the last 12 books in our Bible, our Old Testament. And the first one is Hosea. Uh, he's, he's a minor prophet, though his book is quite long compared to some of the others. Um, and uh, as I said, these are just the, the shorter books. So who was a Hosea? Well, he ministered in the same century as Amos, Isaiah, uh, Jonah, Micah, uh, around about the 8th century, in the middle of the 8th century BC, so the 700s BC, um, just after Elijah and Elisha, which you can read about in the book of King, books of Kings. And at this point in Hosea's writing here, um, you know, Israel is split into two kingdoms. Uh, you may remember that Israel was one kingdom under David. David was, was, came to the throne and then his son Solomon was king. Uh, but then after that, things seemed to go a bit haywire. And his son Rehoboam was not was a uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam didn't follow the Lord and Jeroboam was another figure who decided he would take the ten tribes of the north and split off from the, the two southern tribes Judah and uh, Benjamin and it's normally just called ben, uh, Judah so you've got these two kingdoms uh, one centered around Jerusalem, Judah and you've got the ten tribes in the north um, centered around uh, Samaria that's where the Samaritans come from. And um, Hosea ministered in this northern kingdom uh, amongst the, the Isra- this new Israel, if you like. Um, but here's the thing about the northern tribes. They no longer have access to the temple. There's only one place where God is promised to be at this point in history. 
And that's the temple in Jerusalem. And that's a danger, it's a political danger for the first king, Jeroboam, the the first Jeroboam. The the one you read of here is the second Jeroboam. Uh, uh, But the first Jeroboam, because of the political danger of, of the nation fragmenting, because, you know, any culture gathers around a set of shared beliefs and shared values. And if you've lost the temple, then suddenly that's all up for grabs. So what does Jeroboam do? Well, he creates the high places, new places of worship to go and worship. And the problem is, of course, that they begin to look like the pagan worship, places of pagan worship that are in the, the nations all around. But it preserves political unity for the Israelites. And so you see this widespread decline in the northern kingdom. They'll still nominally be called God's people, but they're they're worshipping like pagans, like the nations all around. And, you know, it's such a tragedy because this this is the nation which God in his grace came and led out of slavery in Egypt and led them to this promised land. A marvelous act of redemption. And this, but the people of the northern tribes begin to decline badly spiritually. And actually that begins to spread into the southern kingdom as well. The southern kingdom of Judah is is a bit behind But basically they're going in the same direction. Even though they have the temple at the center. And so one thing that you need to... So that's the spiritual kind of situation that's going on in the 8th century. Now in God's universe, which he upholds and maintains by his powerful word. So we're looking at that on Thursday. uh, From Hebrews chapter 1, 1 to 4, he maintains... Universe by his powerful word. Um, In God's universe, you cannot separate spiritual events from historical events because God is in control of it all and he uses it all for his own glory. And so the issue for the book of, in the book of Hosea, is that as a result of the, the unfaithfulness of Israel, God's judgment is coming. And his judgment is coming in the form of the Assyrians. This is the great empire that's rising in the east around Nineveh, which I think is in the modern city of Mosul. Is that right? I think in, in Iraq today. But uh, the ruins are there. But you can, you know, that was the city. That was the center of the Assyrian empire. And gradually, over the last century, before Hosea, uh, they'd be moving westwards and southwards, and so they're coming towards the northern borders of the tribes of Israel. And God is saying, this encroachment of this great empire is part of my judgment against your spiritual unfaithfulness to me. Um, so the, the Assyrians do eventually, um, step by step, uh, take the twelve tribes, uh, the ten tribes of the north, and Samaria falls as a city in 722 BC, which is just after I think the book of Hosea um, uh, closes. So Hosea is just before that event, 
Um, so God gives the book of Hosea to explain to Israel what's going to happen and why it's going to happen. And he's going to do so by using this theme of marriage. Uh, he is, uh, is going, to, going to talk about his relationship to the people of Israel in terms of a marriage that has gone wrong. Um, and it's not unique to Hosea. Um, actually, one of the themes that you can trace throughout the Old Testament is, is that the Lord is the husband of Israel. So Israel is kind of like his wife. His wife. Uh, sometimes Israel is spoken of as God's wife, as well as God's son. It's a bit strange. Something you have to change your picture sometimes, depending on where you are in the scripture. And through Hosea, God is going to speak about uh, in terms of the unfaithfulness of Israel to Him as as her husband. And begins to speak about divorce. Um, we'll see how that comes in a minute. Um, and that marriage theme is not alien to the New Testament either. Because what is Jesus? Jesus is now the bridegroom who comes. John chapter 3. He's the bridegroom. The bridegroom and uh, you know, John the Baptist is kind of like the best man. Uh, preparing for the coming of the bridegroom. And... The marriage feast of the Lamb is coming. Uh, One day, there's going to be a great marriage. Between who? Between Christ and the church. And at this time, the the church, this is is Ephesians chapter 5, or book of Revelation, you'll see this. Um, This marriage, the, the church is, at that point, is going to be spotless and pure and clean. And faithful uh, to the Savior, Jesus Christ, who is God come in flesh. So this whole idea of marriage goes all the way through the scripture. Actually, it really starts in the Garden of Eden, but I haven't got time to go into all that. Why are we given marriage? Is it just something that happens? Or did God actually build it into the creation? So he can talk to us about his relationship to us and to all human beings about the kind of relationship he wants with his people. There's a mindset change that has to happen here. We don't just accept it as a thing that humans do and we make it work for Christians. Actually, God has built it there for us. So, I'm rambling in my introduction. But let me, let me press on. Uh, the book of Hosea has two parts. Uh, and in, some people may think it's got three parts to it. So the first part is chapters 1 to 3. And then the second part is 4 to 14. And you might divide the second part into 4 to 11 and then 12 to 14. And uh, we'll explain more of that as, we, as, as, as the weeks go by. Um, but in the first part, in chapters 1 to 3, uh, it's centered around Hosea and his family life. And it presents to us an unusual scene. Because Hosea comes, he's on the scene, he's single, a young man no doubt, and probably under the, the reign, at this point, the reign of Jeroboam the second, uh, mentioned in verse 1. And Hosea is told a strange thing, go and get yourself a wife of whoredom, which is another way of saying a wife of prostitution. 
Now it's kind of unclear whether he is to go and find a prostitute and marry her or whether he is going to marry a woman who has a propensity towards negotiable affections. (laughs) Shall we put it that way? But he is to go and find this woman and, and he finds Gomer and by Gomer... Uh, he's, he has three children. And they all have strange names, but they are meaningful names. And these names become the means by which God communicates what is going to happen. It's kind of an introduction in this chapter, and he's going to spell it out in chapter 2 much more but, uh, and further on. But he is uh, using Hosea's life to communicate a message. So that Hosea gets the message personally, not just carrying a message on a bit of paper or something. But he, in his own life, he's he's experiencing what God is talking about, about the unfaithfulness of his wife. So let's work through this passage, and there are five headings. Sorry, five headings. Uh, We might be here a while. Uh, First of all, the people of God have committed committed spiritual adultery. So Hosea is to take this wife, the wife of whoredom, and uh, it doesn't sound very promising, does it? Because um, at the very least, this, you know, as I said, this woman may be of changeable, possibly financially negotiable affections. Um, but Hosea is to f- find and take this unpromising prospect for marriage and love her as his wife. Now, why does he do this? Uh, well, Why does God do this? Well, God does this because of a bigger reason. And he says, at the end of verse 2, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, by land, I don't think he means the physical ground under your feet. I think he is referring to Israel and Judah together as the people of God called to the promised land. And so land here represents a population. And the mention of land should trigger something in every Jewish mind and maybe our minds as well. That God made promises to Abraham before he received the land God said, I'm the Lord, Genesis 15, 7. I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, this is way over in Iraq somewhere, uh, to give you this land to possess. And so, in your mind you're thinking, this is about the promises of God and how the people of God have been unfaithful to God, God's promises. And Because they've received so much from God so far, but they have violated the covenant bond with God. And as it were, the people of Israel have violated their their marriage vows to God by the way that they live. And friends, as we think about that, you know, there is such a thing as spiritual adultery today. And it's in the church of Jesus Christ. As a church, we are betrothed to Jesus Christ. As a body, we are betrothed to Jesus Christ for the great day to come. And yet, for many people who call themselves Christians, they live as though Jesus Christ doesn't matter. It could begin with uh, your personal 
infidelity. You personally don't care about Jesus Christ. Or you lose track of him. You don't see Jesus any longer as the very center of your life. But you see Jesus maybe just as an an addition to your life. But not at the center of things. He's kind of a, a layer that you put on your life. Instead of it being at the very center. And instead of having Christ at the center of all your desires. And all your goals in life. You have a whole load of other things your, your, your goal, uh, your, all your goals are directed to. And Jesus is kind of added on. And so we can become fickle towards the Lord Jesus Christ in our personal affections, wandering away from him. And if there's enough of that in a church, a local church, then whole churches can get lukewarm towards God. But they might may, may be busy. They might be busy as a church. There might be lots going on. But in their heart of hearts, they're not really committed to God, to, to Jesus Christ. And isn't that what you see in churches up and down the country? In this country? Churches that once thrived, but have since lost their way and are emptying at speed. Because there's nothing there to grip people with. And I think time and time again, you can't grip people with a political message or a social message. People have tried. But it just does not work. Not not in the long term. Eventually those churches die. But when you have Jesus Christ at the center, then there is health and life. So... There is such a thing as spiritual adultery. Secondly, uh, you know, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. So here's, so we're now going to go through the three children that are born to Hosea. And the first one is Jezreel. And most of you will, I guess, won't know the significance of Jezreel. I, I, I had to work at it to figure it out. Um, but it's also the name of a valley uh, which is important in the history of the northern kingdom, uh, just before Hosea. Now, why was it important? Well, because it was there that the, the house of, the, of King Ahab was destroyed. Now, Ahab was evil, and his wife Jezebel was evil. And uh, it was there that they were destroyed. Uh, and God's judgment, as it were, came on Ahab's house, um, on his his wife Jezebel, on Joram, Joram, his son, and many others were put to death by a man whom God anointed to take, his place, uh, take Joram's place as king. This man called Jehu. And Jehu goes on and kills all the, all the prophets of Baal, all the pagan uh, leaders, and he kills them too. So Jezreel is a place of judgment, the valley of Jezreel. And it's just, I don't know if you know your map of Israel, but there's Galilee, and if you go south a bit and then, and then go west, that's, there's a valley called the Valley of Jezreel. And it's that place of judgment for failing to worship God, for the, for the king of Israel uh, who didn't worship God and lead his people to worship God as they should have. And so he and many others were put to death by Jehu. And that also... I hope that sounds all well and good to you. It sounds quite brutal, but you know these things are necessary. Um, 
Except for, Je- you think, well, Jehu, he must be a good guy. Except not all ends well for Jehu. Because in 2 Kings chapter 10, he says, but Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, that first Jeroboam, which he made, which he made Israel to sin. In other words, Jehu did what God wanted in a sense, but in his heart of hearts, he was not really committed to God. Uh, you might think, well, he was, he was doing it. He was carrying out that execution because he wanted the power, not because he wanted the glory of God. And it shows us that how you carry out the commands of God matters as much as doing the commands of God. I.e., with what spirits do you carry out the commands of God? And so the, the problem with Jehu is he, he did what God wanted, but he didn't have the glory of God in mind. He, and he probably was primarily thinking about his power and position. He had no heart for God in it. <clears throat> and so his carrying out of the judgment of God was done for all the wrong reasons. And so the king of the killing at Jezreel, which God commanded, now becomes a reason for the judgment on the house of Jehu. Which is what he mentions here. Um, uh, in verse 4. The Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I'll put an end to the kingdom and the house of Israel. The point is that God is going to come against the land in Hosea's time with a judgment on Jehu's house because they are all living the same way as they used to. Nothing has changed. And there's something for us to think about as, as Christian people today. Um, we were thinking about a similar thing this morning. It's, and we're saying this. It's not enough to call yourself a Christian. It's not enough to come to church. Uh, if in your heart of hearts you are not bound to God. And you love him. And I, I can illustrate this by um, football. Football. <laughs> Some of you can't be bothered with football and understand that. But, you know, that's what our house is like. I, I like football and, and Susan doesn't. She can't be bothered with it. She's not against it, but she's not for it. And, uh, you know, so when there's a game on that is free <laughs> and uh, we can watch on a Wednesday evening or something, then I'm avidly watching it if I've got nothing else to do. But, you know, I'm avidly, if I sit, sit down to watch it, then I'm going to watch it. And I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm watching the passes. I'm watching the movement of the players. I think that's good. Look at, the, look at the coordination of the team and how it's working. Look at the skill of holding onto the ball and passing it through that little gap there. And, you know, you just get excited about the whole thing. And what an amazing goal or what an amazing save or whatever. And you just get kind of into it. And you're fully engaged in it. Susan... On the other hand, I'm sorry, Susan, uh, but she 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 watch football with me, but she's not as engaged in it. In fact, she'll probably get her phone out <laughs> and start reading the paper or whatever else she does <laughs> on the phone. And then if if something exciting happens, then she'll look up and say, "Oh yeah, that's good." <laughs> um, so, no, my point is not to give Susan a hard time about this at all. Not at all, but. You know, some people are like that with worship. 
God. Some people are focused on the worship of God. You know, when they come into this room, they come early enough, they're sitting down, they're praying, they're ready, they're expectant, they want to, they want to drink in every word that comes from God. So we, they read the scripture that we, we read out, the call to worship, we, they engage in the prayers and they're amening in their heads when, they're, when, we're pray, when I'm praying, I'm leading in prayer. Uh, and when they're reading scripture, they're drinking it in. And they're drinking it in. Saying, what does this mean? What does this mean? And uh, when they're singing the hymns, they're meditating on what they're singing. And uh, their hearts are being filled up with joy. Because uh, the things that we're singing are just amazing. And then when the sermon comes, you know, you're, you're thinking, what does this mean, Stephen? Or whoever's on the pulpit. And they're saying, what does this mean? And wrestling with the, the whole thing. And at the end, you, know, you hear the benediction from the Lord who, who blesses you. And you say, what an amazing God we have. As we walk out from here, you see you're drinking it in. You're avidly engaged. But then there's other people who are not like that at all. Their heart's not really in it. Daydreaming. Thinking about your next dinner. <laughs> Wanting to get your phone out. Maybe actually getting your phone out. I do wonder if some people are actually... Really listening, or they're fiddling around. I know people take notes on their phones sometimes, <laughs> so it's hard to tell. But you know, and I can see everything from here. Friends, if your heart is not in it, and your heart is given over to other things, even while you're here, then you're drifting into spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness. And the warning here is that there comes a day, if that's a habit of yours, that you just don't engage with God. And the warning here is that there comes a day when the judgment of God will fall. And as I say, you may be a church member and come to church, but those external things could be done for all the wrong reasons because in your heart of hearts you long for something else that you believe will satisfy you more than God himself. Judgment. So here's the second thing. Let's press on quicker. The opportunity for mercy will be lost. So the second child is born to Hosea and Gomer, a girl this time, and she's to be called No Mercy, verse 6. And it's, what a strange name, No Mercy. You know, it wasn't a modern equivalent. Well, many people, many women today are, you know, maybe not so common now, but uh, many women I know, are, there's quite a few women I know are called Grace. But just imagine if their parents had said, No Grace. What's your name? No Grace. <laughs> or Grace Less. <laughs> it's just such a weird name, isn't it? But it makes you, makes you think. If you were to meet somebody with a name like No Grace, what a strange thing. And this is what this poor child is to be called, No Grace, No Mercy. Now why? Why this name? Well, again, the name has meaning for Israel because the time is going to come when the opportunity to receive God's mercy is going to be gone. As it were, the protective hand of God that has so far spared them from absolute calamity is coming to an end. 
And for Israel, it will end soon, as we shall see. Uh, Though for Judah, there will be something of a reprieve. If you look at verse 7, it seems to be very positive about Judah, but not forever. Um, I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. So for now, Judah is going to be spared this lack of mercy. Though, you know, as history plays out, it comes to them too. But um, now this, this idea of no mercy is the reverse side of uh, judgment. So if ju- God's judgment comes, then the time for mercy has gone. All right, so... You know, if God is showing his wrath, uh, then he's not showing mercy. And one implies the other. And if you have mercy, then the wrath is removed from you. Now the point is this, that the people who have no heart for God will one day, uh, the day will come when they will, they will experience no longer any mercy from God. There will no longer be an opportunity to receive the forgiveness of their sins and be accepted and welcomed into God's presence. Now, this is now what you have to bear in mind here is that you know, God is such a patient God. He is full of patience and long suffering, and He gives people ample opportunity to come to Him. And He does so time and time and time and time again. He gives them the opportunity to seek out his forgiveness. As it were, God has constantly got his arms open wide to his people, to his beloved bride, and saying, come to me, and he's wooing them. Come to me, come to me, come to me, he says. And in fact, the gospel that we preach of Jesus Christ is all about how God has provided this way of salvation, a representative who will take away all our sins so that people could come and have their sins forgiven. So we are in a period of incredible mercy of God. And sinners can come and receive forgiveness of sins. And all those sins that are past, present, and all the future ones as well, all of them are dealt with by Jesus Christ. Who died on the cross. And this is the the message that went out into the early church. And what joy there was in the early church. As they received the the gospel of forgiveness. All their sins dealt with. A clear conscience before God. What a marvelous thing. But of course not everybody takes up the gospel offer. And there will come a time for those people. When there will be no more offers of mercy. And that, time, that is a time for no mercy. I remember an elderly man. I think it was when we were doing a mission here. And we had an American team over uh, joining with us for the mission. And uh, one of our young people... Uh, got talking to a man in his 80s who was passing by the building we were using. And he was great. Jude was great. <laughs> Quoting the catechism. And uh, uh, it, was, it clearly impressed this old man. But he said, 
Yeah, but I'm too old. I'm too old for the gospel. I'm too, too old to change my life now. And I couldn't help feeling that he was going to walk away and that would be the last ever opportunity he would ever have to come and seek the mercy of God. How many people do we know for whom that last day may have passed already and they sit and live in their cocooned life, a life where there is no mercy? You know, for some people, they always want to do things later than now. You know, I can't become a Christian now. I can't change my life now. Uh, because, you know, well, there's always later. I'll come to it later. There's always a later. Except that when it isn't, and you're dead. <laughs> That's the trouble. Death comes suddenly to people. You know, I've met people who believe they're, they're, in, they're in terminal illness. And they still believe they're going to live. And it's hard to... It's not for me to persuade them otherwise, but professionals are saying that person's not going to live. I'm trying to get them to seek God in that time. How difficult that is. No mercy. Well, there's a third child born to Hosea and Gomer. And uh, it's another boy this time. A son, verse 8. Um, and he is to be called not my people. And this... This child tells us about how the covenant with God is broken. So, not my people, Lot Ami, um, not my people. And the reason for this name is because God is saying, I'm no longer going to be your God. And you're no longer going to be my people. And there's such an air of finality about this for the Israelites. You know, the great promises that were made to the patriarchs and to Israel through Moses was, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is a great covenant bond that is made by God with his people. And so those, those patriarchs, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, they all believed the promises of God. They, they, they loved God. And uh, yes, they had their ups and downs, but they loved God. Their lives were given over to him. But now, in this generation of Isaiah, it's as though God has taken the certificate of marriage and just torn it up. Said, you're not my people anymore. And friends, I think this, this notion of covenant is something particularly for church members to consider. See, in this church, we don't believe that merely becoming a church member means that you're saved and have eternal life. That may not be true. Because for that, you need to be born again of the Spirit of God. You actually need to have a living faith and you need to have, uh, by grace, been granted repentance. So faith and repentance uh, are, are the evidences of a genuine new birth in Jesus Christ. And that is what saves you. And church membership should reflect that, but sometimes it doesn't. Um, being, but being a church member does carry with it certain responsibilities before God, whether you're born again or not. If you're baptized, you have the name of God put upon you. So how you, how you live matters, even if you don't believe him. If you profess faith, 
publicly. Stand up in front of this church and profess your faith in Jesus Christ. And you commit, you know, you profess, and in those promises, you're giving your allegiance to Jesus Christ. But you could do that going through the mo- by merely going through the motions. You could be baptized, and you can say all the right things, but your heart is elsewhere. You see, your heart is elsewhere. And even when you come to the point, you you will, you know, you will come. There will be people in the church who will come to the point in their lives where Jesus says to you, "Not my man, not my woman." And he will say, like we said this morning, end of Matthew chapter 7, I never knew you. You may be a member of the church. And Jesus may still say to you, I never knew you if you are not born again and have a genuine living faith in Jesus Christ. That's a sobering message, isn't it? That the covenant of God will be broken. I think that's true of church members who drift away from the Lord break covenant with God and they're lost forever well that's a sobering message and all of it's sobering so far you're probably really depressed this evening but let me just finish quickly with a word of hope and you see this here at the end of chapter 1 and the first verse of chapter 2 there is hope and the vision I think here switches to the future uh, far into the future and there, let me just quickly run through those five things he mentions that are going to happen And some of it will play out later in the the book. First of all, he repeats the promises once made to Abraham. That the people will be a numerous people, verse 10. So that was a promise made to to Abraham, uh, Genesis 22. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. So so the promises of God are still operative, even though the covenant seems to be broken. The covenant administration is broken. But the promises are still operative. So they're going to be numerous. Second thing, there will be a new covenant. Verse 10 again. Uh, now you, don't, you look at that and you say, where's the word covenant? It isn't there. Um, but let me read it to you and maybe you can see why. And in the place where it's said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. You see, there's a reestablishment establishing of the relationship between God and his people. Now, in that future time, his people will be his people when once they weren't. And we have this indication that the old is gone, the new is coming. A new covenant is coming. Third thing, there will be a bringing together of the people of God into one people. So here it's expressed as Israel and Judah. And uh, that's that's significant for Hosea because of the northern and southern kingdoms being split. But they're going to come together. But here's the interesting thing. The promise is not just to those physically descended from Jacob. How do I know that? Because of the way the New Testament uses these verses and these ideas. And so, Paul, the apostle talks about how under the gospel Gentiles and Jews are going to be brought together and how does he justify that? By quoting from Hosea. Actually 2.23 
I will sow her for myself in the land, I will have, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say not my, to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. And Paul takes that verse up in Romans chapter 9, and says this is bigger than just Israel and Judah, it's about Gentiles and Jews being pulled together. And this will be fulfilled, of course, in the New Testament church. Fifthly, fourthly, <laughs> can't count. Uh, fourthly, they shall appoint one head. Well, that's, I wonder if you can guess who that might be, this one king. Who might this, might this be? Well, it can only be the Lord Jesus Christ. He hasn't got a name yet in Hosea. Uh, and he is, of course, appointed by God. As we read in Isaiah, the servant is ready to come. But God appoints him and then in in turn, the church of Jesus Christ recognizes Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They, in a sense, in their hearts, they appoint him as their king. They acknowledge him as their king. And then fifthly and finally, they shall go up. Doesn't sound like much. They sh- verse, uh, end of verse 11. And they shall go up from the land. For great shall be the day of Jezreel. Uh, they shall go up. They shall, or s- they shall spring up. Without going into great detail about this. And I've mentioned this before. When you have the idea of plants springing up. Of coming to life. Of that which was once a desert becoming brimming with life. All under the gracious irrigation of God as he pours out his blessing. It seems to me that that image of springing up foreshadows the resurrection of his people from the dead, from the grave. So why do, where do you see the resurrection in the Old Testament? We see it all the time in the springing up from the ground. This kind of agricultural image of harvest growing and then being gathered in. And so, Jesus Christ comes, and he is the first of that. He dies, and he rises from the dead. He is the first fruits of that harvest, springing up from the ground. And Jezreel, which was to be a place of judgment earlier in the chapter, now becomes this place of blessing. This is the future that's coming. God's promises have not been forgotten. For these people, there is going to be judgment. But God will achieve all that he plans and purposes. There's nothing that he he will not do that he has said he will do. And so we look to him. Now the question for us is, are you one of those people who will spring up from the ground? Part of his holy people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this passage. Searching in many ways, uh, we pray you'd help us to examine our hearts in the light of your word, that we may be fully committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.